Good morning, church. I hope all of you are doing well. Uh, last week was uh, just a powerful and, and beautiful uh, reminder of uh, Christ's triumph over death. And uh, it, was, it was really great for me just to celebrate the resurrection, even from home, even missing all of you. Uh, the resurrection is the defining tradition, um, joy, and substance of our faith as Christians. So last week we uh, kicked off two things as well. We kicked off our Enduring Hope series as we go through Second Thessalonians. And we also kicked off a 21-day fast um, that is designed to just draw us closer to Jesus in this time. And uh, for me, um, I'm going to give up uh, a soda and sugar. And also um, committing to do a prayer walk uh, for about a mile every day around our neighborhood. So I'm really excited about it. And uh, this week, uh, for me also, has probably been one of the best weeks of the, of the quarantine. Even though for some strange reason I am not having sugar or soda. Uh, one of the things uh, that happened when um, kind of the quarantine hit and the social isolation hit, it was kind of tough for me. Um, honestly, kind of being an extrovert. I think I was a little down, maybe even a little depressed, and so I turned to Dr. Pepper, and I had a Dr. Pepper like every afternoon. Um, just again, I needed to pick me up, so instead of, of coffee, I went to Dr. Pepper, and this last week, um, I just realized that um, God's been telling me that I don't need um, sugar or snacks or even soda to feel better. But just to spend time with him. And that's been something that uh, I really was convicted about very quickly in this 21-day uh, fast. That, that I was turning to, to, again, soda and sugar and snacks to, to just make me feel better. And um, God wants us to turn to Jesus first instead of the world. So I uh, just want to encourage you, if you've not started the fast, that's okay. Uh, jump in at the two-week mark. Um, also, if you uh, hadn't received a, a fasting commitment sheet, our church would love uh, to get you one of those. Just contact us. We also have them on our website and our Facebook page. Uh, one more story for you. Um, I was uh, on a, a prayer walk on Friday morning in uh, my neighborhood, and everything was going well. I mean, it was cool out. Um, the, you know, the morning was just crisp. Um, I, my three kids weren't running around and bothering me. I was praying, you know, the, the birds were just, it, it was just a great morning and I'm walking around and all of a sudden I start to hear a, a slow, faint sound. It's getting closer and closer and, and the rumble of a garbage truck turns down the same street that I'm prayer walking on. And, um, what do I do? I'm like frozen. Do I speed up? Uh, do I run? I, I don't want to run. It's, I, I committed to prayer walking. Um, so I'm kind of stuck with what I'm going to do. And I, I figure, you know, I'm just going to continue to walk and pray. And, and maybe the garbage truck will, you know, turn down another street. Uh, the garbage truck did not. And um, the smell was pretty bad. Uh, the noise was loud and clanky, and my concentration was broken, and I was just what, like, what the heck, God? What am I doing? This serene prayer walk, this drawing close to you is now just completely interrupted by a smelly, stank garbage truck. And... Um, I realized that God was just saying, keep walking. And so I kept walking and I realized that um, maybe God was telling me to reflect on this. And so I said, what possible reflective insight can I gain from a garbage truck? And um, I think God was just starting to tell me that 
I needed to take out some of the trash in my life that had been building up over the last couple weeks. You see, over time, our lives can be full of the the things of the world and and our lives can smell. And just like as a home, we need to take out the trash regularly and and put the trash out on the side of the street. God was telling me that in my spiritual life, I I needed to be taking out the trash as well. Um, Fortunately for me, after about three more um, minutes, the garbage truck turned down another street. So church, um, I just want to encourage us that we need to be taking out the trash in our spiritual lives, the dependence on Dr. Pepper and screens and news and social media and streaming services and alcohol, whatever, wherever we're depending on that's not of God, his people are called to be depending on God. Um, Again, I did not like walking behind that truck, but I needed to learn and appreciate what God was doing. So with that said, um, I've got a few announcements for you. Um, First, um, for the kids, um, today I'm going to have you guys draw a picture. And I want you guys to draw a picture of Jesus beating up the devil. So kind of Jesus beating up the bad guy. Um, What does that look like? I'm curious for you kids. What what will that look like? Um, The second announcement um, is just that we're going to be continuing our digital streaming services uh, again through um, the month of April and possibly beyond. And we'll be um, letting you guys know and giving you guys the right information on what that looks like um, from us. Um, third thing, uh, I was actually on a Zoom call with some of the people in our church, and we had this brief moment of screen share. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, uh, and it, you can learn a lot from someone uh, through their screen share, but I saw someone save bookmarks at the top of their web browser. And um, what I thought was interesting is, again, conveniently located in the left corner, the place where we oftentimes look first um, when we're going to websites, um, was just simple tab, a simple bookmark, and it was the link to the Awaken Giving page. It just said Awaken Giving on it. And I thought that was really interesting. This is the place where we look to when we go to on a website. And this person has saved as a bookmark how to give to the church. And um, I was really humbled by that, um, that they would even make that a bookmark. Um, I was proud of them. Of course, I didn't say anything. Um, And I I just wanted to encourage um, um, us as a church family that uh, giving is important, and we simply want to encourage you to be faithful um, and to faithfully give in this time. And uh, we're just going to dive in this morning, and so we're going to go right to our text, which is in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to read um, the end of the chapter first. Let's read in verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. These words just leap from the pages of Scripture, and I cannot wait to unpack them. Um, but before we do, we have to ask ourselves, what did Paul say? If, if we've been given this eternal comfort and good hope and our hearts will be comforted and, and things will be established, our good works and good words, what, how does Paul reach this conclusion? Um, well, last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 1. And we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, I thought Pastor Frank shared two incredibly awesome things. Um, the, the first was just the difference between hope and optimism. Uh, you see, optimism was the tendency to expect the best possible outcome. 
you know, popular, popular slogans like be positive and akuna matata and don't worry, be happy. These are things that express optimism. Um, but optimism often goes wrong because it just looks at the now. It just looks at the immediate. Optimism wants things to change very soon. And if they change very soon, then you're happy and things are better. Well, you see, hope is, hope is a little different. Hope is built on the character and nature of God's promises. Hope is not tied to the immediate. And oftentimes hope is surrounded by suffering and by hardship. But hope in that suffering and hardship looks to God. Again, optimism only looks for things to get a little bit better. The second thing that we looked at last week was the foundation of hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus. And we do this. The church does this via prayer. We do this best via prayer. In fact, this is what Paul is writing the Thessalonians about. He is praying for them earnestly in prayer that they would grasp the hope that has been given to them in Christ. Paul ends 2 Thessalonians 1 by praying for the church. And so this is what has happened in 2 Thessalonians 1. Now we're going to turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. So let's dive in and see why Paul is praying for this church. Uh, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers... Um, so in ancient letter writing, um, Paul responds to questions. And this is not just ancient letter writing, this is modern letter writing too. If someone writes you, you respond to them. And this young church in uh, Thessaloniki, which is a, a Greek city, um, they're writing to Paul. And Paul is currently located in Corinth, another um, Greek city. And they're writing to him and they have a lot of questions. You see, Paul had just traveled through Thessaloniki. He probably stayed there around a month, maybe a little bit longer. And he taught the gospel and he he taught scriptures to them and many believed. And so after he left, he went to Corinth to do the same thing in Corinth. But these young believers, these, these very, um, you could call them infants in their faith, they had a lot of questions. Um, I kind of, um, as a parent of three kids, my kids have a lot of questions sometimes. And so they write to Paul and they say, Paul, we've got these questions. And Paul answers them. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, immediately Paul's letters would categorize him as someone who is writing treason in that day. You see, he's, he's writing about the Lord. Well, see, there's only one Lord in the ancient world, and that was Caesar. And he's saying there's another Lord, Jesus Christ. So not only is it treason to Rome, but if you read just a little bit farther, it's Jesus Christ. And, and Christ is the, the title given to the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one. And so Paul's letters and words would have been even treasonous to a Jew. And so if you begin to start reading this letter, you read that there's another Lord, Jesus Christ. In some ways, Paul is declaring himself guilty of treason religiously with the Jews and politically with Rome. Yet it's the simple great confession of the Christian faith throughout the ages. Lord Jesus 
Christ. So Paul writes then concerning the coming or, or concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Now being gathered together, um, we have to kind of understand what this looks like and what this means. Being gathered together, this is an image of safety. Uh, in the ancient world, the king or ruler, you see, he would gather people safely behind the walls of the city. Or he would gather his army together to wage war um, against the enemy. Or he would gather um, the harvest together so his people could be fed. This is a, an image of a, of a king protecting his people, being gathered together. Jesus also says this in Luke 13 and Matthew 23, how he longs to gather his people like a hen gathers her chicks. And he speaks this looking around over Jerusalem. And, and I think when we see that picture, we, we see this picture of a hen with her chicks and and when the chicks are threatened or in danger, when there's a fox or a wolf around, what this hen will do is, is she'll spread out her wings and she will gather her children so they would be safe. And this is the kind of the mentality that Paul wants us to pick on. What, what he wants us to see is, is Jesus Christ is going to gather us together so that we will one day be safe and so, this relates to us, I think, in a profound way, because when we talk about hope, and again, our series is Enduring Hope, when we talk about hope, I, I think what we really are talking about is our longing for safety, our, our longing for security, our, our longing for things to become better, for enemies to be defeated, for our children to grow up in peace, for wars and injuries and accidents and death to be over. When we talk about hope, we are longing for a better world. And so Paul is responding to them and their concern for a better world. If they're believing in Jesus Christ, again, as young believers, aren't things supposed to get better? Isn't he supposed to make the wrongs in the world right? And Paul asked them a question. Again, he says, we ask you brothers. So they <laughs> write him a question and immediately he turns back around and asks them a question. It's uh, really, um, in, in many ways, in many cultures, it's the sign of, of greatest intelligence. To be asked a question and then to turn around and ask uh, another question so that the person who asks you the question can meditate on what you've asked them and in so doing, find the answer. And so Paul says in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken. Again, his question, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so Paul addresses what's going on. This, this church, this young church, it's shaken up. Um, their composure is, is lost. Something has rattled them. And again, this, this is 
very typical of if you're a new believer or a new follower, not only a Christian, but a, a new believer or follower of anything, that something can rattle you, something can shake you up, something can cause you to doubt. And Paul identifies what those three things are. It could be a spirit, maybe a, some sort of spirit has shaken up this young church. It could be another spoken word um, from someone else, from another teacher, from another source. Or it could be another letter, another writing from somewhere, another religious text. And um, these three things, spirit, spoken word, or letter. I think the same is true for us today. We can become alarmed at spiritual warfare. We can become alarmed at a certain piece of news that we've heard. And we can become alarmed by another book or another source of information, something else that we have read. And our faith can be shaken. And all of a sudden we might have questions about our Lord Jesus Christ. We might have questions about what does his coming back look like. Um, and, and this was the effect that those um, uh, alarming things had produced. You see, they produced the effect that Jesus had already come back. Now, we can wonder about that. Well, what, what, like, so what does that mean? Um, and I think it's important to know, um, for the Jews, again, Jesus had not yet come. Uh, the Messiah had not yet come, and so they didn't believe in Jesus. For the Christians who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the theological implications of if he's already come back was that, well, your sin's already paid for. Just live however you want to live, believing that he's a God, um, believing that um, he's done what he said he's going to do, and you know what? You'll go to heaven. But what's absent in there is the need for any kind of righteous living. In fact, Jesus just becomes one among many other gods. So if you say a bedtime prayer to him, and if you admit that he's God and that he um, should come into your heart and forgive you of your sins, then you can go to heaven. But none of that actually would change how you live. You just kind of put him up in there as like on your wall of gods. You know, he, he becomes one among many that you pray to, so you've got all your bases covered. In other words, you don't really have to change. Let's keep reading. Paul says this in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So again, this church is worried that, that Jesus has already come back. And Paul is really clear here. Um, in very clear language, don't be deceived. Jesus has not returned. You can't do whatever you want to do. And then he says, that day will not come until certain things happen. And I want to be very clear to you, 2 Thessalonians 2 is not the only place that shares what those things are. In fact, Jesus in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, John in Revelation, they all talk about these things as well. So Paul is not a lone voice here. 
So oftentimes these things are called tribulation where a great rebellion happens. And again, the Bible does not deal with specifics here. What Paul is doing to this young church is giving them a type. This is the, the type of things that will happen. I think in our world, in our theology, in our sometimes even pop culture Christianity, we tend um, uh, to say things like, well, COVID-19 is a sign of, of Jesus coming back. And I, I don't think that's, um, uh, that's what the writers of the Bible had in mind. But let's look at what this types are. Let's look at these these two verses, verses 3 and 4, and see what those things are because there's an incredible contrast to what's going on. And this is going to be the first of two contrasts in this passage that I want to illuminate for you. So we see in verses 3 and 4 that there's a man of lawlessness. Sometimes he's, he's called the Antichrist. And, and we see that he's going to have certain things that he does when the end is coming, right before Jesus comes. And what's interesting is those things are exactly opposite of what Jesus Christ has done. So let's look at what the man of lawlessness will do. And again, um, this chart, uh, I'm not pulling this from anywhere on the internet. It's actually right from the text, right from verses 3 and 4. We're staying within the bounds of Scripture. So this man of lawlessness, um, he's a man of wickedness. Um, the Bible calls him the son of perdition, the son of destruction. He will bring destruction with him. Um, he opposes God and, and everything that God is doing. Um, he exalts himself to be God. He exalts himself. He praises himself. His pride um, props him up. In fact, he exalts himself so much that he enthrones himself declares that he is the ruler of the world and proclaims himself to be God. And at the heart of this, I want you to see what this is, this is doing. Man is making himself to be God. Man is making himself to be God. This happens several other times throughout Scripture. It, it happens um, with the Tower of Babel, um, and God scatters men. It happens with Nebuchadnezzar, glorying in the fact that, that he is divine and, and has ruled all of creation and rules such a wide expanse, and God turns him into a beast. Um, it happens with Herod in Acts. People chant and proclaim him as a god, and it, instead of correcting them, he does not. He basks in it and immediately an angel strikes him dead. Man, according to this lawless man, is trying to make himself into God. But let's take a quick look at who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Instead of bringing destruction, Jesus Christ brings salvation. Instead of opposing God, Jesus obeyed God. Instead of exalting himself, Jesus humbled himself. Instead of enthroning himself, Jesus is actually raised up and seated at the right hand of God. Instead of proclaiming himself, Jesus allows others to proclaim that he is Lord Jesus Christ. And last, we see what we celebrate again year after year, 
that God is made into a man, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself through the incarnation, through perfect obedience, through suffering a brutal death under Roman governor Pontius Pilate, through being buried and through being raised, raised to life and seated at the right hand of God. This is the miracle of Jesus Christ is that God allowed himself to be made into man and bear our sins. He did this for his great love for us. Um, you know, a quick note as we look at this, this man of lawlessness in Jesus Christ, there have been many um, forms of government, empires, people who've done the same thing. They've tried to make themselves to be God or they said there's no God or religion doesn't exist. In the last hundred years alone, the communist, fascist, and socialist governments of the world have brought destruction to the tune of over a hundred million people. But I can't help but look that Jesus Christ, still ruling and reigning in heaven, has brought salvation to hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. Let's keep reading in verse 5. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Um, in a very super loving, fatherly way, Paul reminds them that, that says, hey, don't you remember I, I taught these things to you before? We've, we've already looked at these things. We've studied these things before. I've shared them with you. In fact, these things were shared with Paul as well. There's a reason why Paul's um, theology and understanding of Jesus' return is so closely aligned to Mark's understanding, to Matthew's understandings, to John's understanding. These things have been passed down to them. They're part of the, the Christian teaching of the church. And what Paul is saying is, hey, I've, I've, I've covered this ground before. Don't be alarmed. Don't worry. And I think this is really helpful because, again, I shared earlier as a parent, I've got three kids. Uh, sometimes I get frustrated because <laughs> I have to tell my kids the same thing. It's the same answer. The answer's not changed. But I, I'm reminded that my kids, they, they might have been frightened or they might need hope. They, they just need to be reminded of truth. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He's reminding us of truth. You see, hope, it's not just optimism or wishful thinking. It's substantiated truth from Scripture. And Paul's giving it to them in the form of a fatherly, loving letter. A letter communicating that his desire is to be with them. He, he wants his presence is what's needed. And, and as a dad, I think that's the case too. When my kids are afraid, when they're scared, when they need hope, when they need truth, they, they really just want my presence. That's what their question is all about. They, they just want my presence and my voice. You see, they, they want to be gathered up under my wings. They need protection. We're going to keep reading Again, starting in verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul has just encouraged this young church that I've talked to you about these things before. And then he says, you know what is restraining this lawless one, this, this antichrist, so that may, he may be revealed in his time. And this has been uh, kind of a puzzle uh, for scholars and biblical theologians and pastors. It, we know what's restraining him. <laughs> uh, what What's preventing him from coming? What is that? And, and we're... We're unsure, and there's been a number of, of things that, that have been put forth as what could be restraining. Um, and, and so I want to touch briefly on them, but I, I think that that's not the right um, question. Uh, what's restraining him? And, and so we'll touch on them briefly, and then I'll, I'll share with you what is the right thing to look at. And oftentimes we do this when we read Scripture. We might focus on this little thing over here and, and miss the big truth over there. Um, but what is restraining this lawless one? What is restraining this Antichrist? Some people have said it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is preventing him from coming. Other people have said it's the church. Uh, the church is preventing him, um, and you know we're waiting for the church um, to be taken up. Other people have said angels. Angels are opposing. Um, there's a spiritual battle, and angels are opposing the lawless one. Um, the fourth people have said just the proclamation of the gospel, that the gospel is not yet persecuted across the earth, so that the faithful testimony of the saints, the proclamation of the gospel um, from missionaries to normal people, sharing God's love and God's truth. This restrains the evil one. Uh, again, I, I think those are all... Um, Really, really great answers. Um, I, honestly, I'm not sure if that's them or not, but I will share um, what I think the the answer that is right. You see, I think what is restraining the evil one is the sovereign unfolding plan of God throughout history. Whatever is restraining the evil one is subordinate to God. Again, whatever is restraining the evil one is subordinate to God's sovereign control and plan that is unfolding throughout history. And I, I know this because, you see, there's a sovereign unfolding plan to reveal Jesus Christ at the right time in history. Well, the language here is similar because it says this man of lawlessness will be revealed. There's going to be a sovereign unfolding plan to reveal this man of lawlessness. And when that happens, when that revelation happens, you see, that's when the promises of Scripture around the end times kick in. Again, I think we're, we're off as, as modern evangelical Christians when we start going off the rails and talking about blood moons and Hebrew codes. What we need is Scripture and the truth of Scripture to illuminate the end times. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, we will know. And so we see that whatever is restraining him, even that falls under the sovereign plan of God. And you might ask, well, what is the sovereign plan of God? Simple. 
Scripture from creation to new creation talks about the sovereign plan of God is the total enthronement of Jesus Christ over all things. This is the sovereign plan of God. And we even see in these verses that Paul does, um, I think Paul does three very important things, three things that should, that it should anchor us into hope and truth and understanding about the end times. My hope is that, that you walk away with these three truths and they're clear to you. First, Jesus will destroy the wickedness and the lawlessness and the man of evil. Jesus is the one who will bring safety to this world. Second, how will he do that? He will do that through the breath of his mouth. Uh, again, this is a Trinitarian thing that, that Paul is doing. Paul is saying God and Jesus are equal. In the Old Testament, you see God's presence and breath had the power to melt mountains and creation. It had the power to melt kings and judge kings and judge the wicked. This is what it talks about in Psalm 97 and Isaiah 4. And Paul says this thing in the Old Testament that was reserved for God... Well, you see, in the New Testament, it's being revealed that it's reserved for Jesus as well because Jesus and God are co-equal in power and substance. Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament and giving Jesus the same powers that belonged to God. And so the enemy, the lawless one, he will be defeated by the breath of his mouth and by what? Third thing, the appearance of his coming. The appearance of his coming. Jesus Christ will be so bright that he will bring to nothing all of the evil plans of this man of lawlessness and this wickedness. Um, so kids, you guys have been drawn a picture um, I, I don't know what your picture looks like. I, I imagine it looks really cool. I imagine, um, like Satan and, and the devil and, and this, this, uh, evil guys are getting beat up a lot by Jesus. But here in this text, it says Jesus will defeat them just by showing up. Just by the breath of his mouth and his appearance, Jesus defeats them. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I really loved um, Avengers Endgame, um, both one and two. It was really cool. You know what was happening. The fight was on. You saw the Avengers. You saw the, the you know, uh, you saw the hordes of Thanos. You saw Thanos, and, like, it was that, like, perfect, like, crystal clear, like, pause, like, there's going to be an epic battle, you know, and then the battle was like 45 minutes long. And, and, you know, the first battle kind of, you know, Thanos won the second. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for you guys. Anyways, there's this pause and you're like, there's going to be an epic battle. The Avengers are on the scene. Well, the, the Bible doesn't even say that there's going to be an epic battle. It just says that Jesus Christ shows up and his enemies are defeated because he is God. That is incredible. And I think sometimes we can look at Jesus coming back as like he's going to try to just keep all of us in safety and the whole world's going to like do some crazy things for a while and he's going to come back. 
And scripture is just really clear here that when Jesus comes back, evil will be defeated. And, and again, this, is, this should cause us to think about because even our imagery of Jesus and Jesus coming back, it's surrounded by rainbow and glitter and Easter eggs and candy. And Jesus does not come back to do all those things. He doesn't come back to give candy to kids. Jesus comes back to defeat evil and sin and suffering and wickedness and the devil. Jesus will destroy them all. And you know what? He will even come back to defeat and destroy good people who do not believe in him. He will bring them all to nothing. Let's keep reading. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second um, image that I want you guys to see, the, the second kind of chart that I'd love to unpack for you. You see, there's two responses that happen. Again, we're going to contrast the lawless one, the Antichrist, with Jesus Christ. Because you see, the lawless one, he is a phony and a fake, and he his goal is to lead men and women astray. So what is he about? The Bible, again, um, this chart, it's, it's not taken from a theology textbook. It's not taken from the internet. It's, it's actually just literally taken from these verses that we just read. So the lawless one, it says that uh, it's the activity of Satan that he's going to be about. He's going to be about power and false signs and wonders, kind of like a, a magician. It's going to be a wicked deception. It, again, it's not just this like white lie. There, there's stakes here. There, there's a deception going on that, that ends and leads to death. In fact, sin... Uh, at its core is a deception that leads to death. The effect of that will be people will see that and they will refuse to love the truth. And we'll get to what that truth is in a minute. And because they refuse to love the truth, they'll be given false, deluded beliefs by God. As a result, they will be condemned and until that condemnation, though, they will take pleasure in unrighteousness. They will take pleasure in acknowledging that they do not believe in a God. And so what is the response, though, that we see to Jesus Christ? You see, Paul contrasts the coming of the lawless one to what the coming of the gospel did in the lives of the people at Thessaloniki. Again, it's a young church, and he tells them and reminds them, this is what the gospel did to you. Number one, it's the activity of God. It's fueled not by power, false signs, and wonders. It's fueled by the love of God. 
Instead of being a wicked deception for people, people are actually chosen and saved. They're given their worth and their dignity back through love. Instead of people refusing to love the truth, they are actually sanctified by the Holy Spirit who is sent by God. Instead of false, deluded beliefs, they actually believe in the truth. Instead of being condemned, they are called by the gospel, called by the good news that Jesus Christ is here to save sinners. And instead of taking pleasure in unrighteousness, they actually receive the glory that has been obtained and purchased by Jesus Christ for his people. And make no mistake, the first several verses that you see, they sadden us. These people have no hope. They live a deluded life. They've rejected God. So God turns them over to their beliefs. But Paul is writing about his joy and thanks, which is the conversion of these Thessalonians. And this language of, of chosenness and calling, it's about safety and security, isn't it? It, in fact, is about adoption. You see, when you're an orphan child... You are not safe. When you have no parents, you have no protectors. You need someone stronger than you to protect, love, and defend you. And what this language is setting up, it's setting up, Paul is saying God is the one who's going to adopt you. And this is what it looks like. He's reaching into these Greco-Roman beliefs about adoption that are still true to us this day. Adoption works the same way. Helpless children are adopted by loving parents. And this is one of the thematic truths over and over again about our salvation. We have been adopted by Jesus Christ. We've been adopted by God our Father. You see, we were helpless, orphaned, alone, deluded, but God has adopted us and loved us, given us truth and a new home and a new family. And I think this is really important. You see, Paul is not really answering their questions. And I think this is true. Oftentimes when our hope turns fragile, when we're shaken up a a little bit, when we lose our composure, we want answers to our questions. Paul is not answering their questions. He's doing something rather different. He is reminding them of their identity. When we need hope the most, what we really need is to be reminded of our identity in Jesus Christ and God the Father. Let's keep reading. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold. These are imperative companions. Grasp onto, cling, don't let go. So I just want to remind you where we started off with this chapter. You see, this young church, they were alarmed by three things. Remember what those three things were? They were alarmed by a spirit. They were alarmed by a spoken word from someone, or they were alarmed by a letter. And what does Paul do? He says, stand first and stand fast and hold on to what? Traditions taught by us 
spoken word or by a letter. In other words, Paul's saying, don't be alarmed by the, by the, the junk that is coming in. Rather, stand fast and hold firm to the word of God that you're putting in. So traditions, we see this word tradition, we don't like it. Um, it's actually a really beautiful word because Paul is saying um, the, the, what he shared in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, what he shared in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This was the Lord's Supper and this was the gospel. And Paul's saying, I'm passing on to you. When Paul's saying, I'm holding, hold fast to this tradition. He's not saying a tradition by man. He's saying a tradition passed on to him the gospel. That Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again on the third day. That Jesus Christ uh, broke uh, his body and shed his blood for his children. Paul is talking about the tradition of the gospel. And the gospel is more powerful than a spirit. So he's telling this young church, don't engage into all this spiritual warfare. Hold fast to the gospel. The gospel is what's going to put you on the solid rock. Then he says, for them to hold fast to the spoken words that they heard in their midst. Did not Paul remind them in verse 5? He'd already been there teaching them and preaching to them. And then last, Paul says to hold fast to this letter. It's one of the most beautiful verses on holding fast to New Testament scripture that we have. Hold fast, stand firm on this New Testament scripture. When we are alarmed and shaken, hold fast to the gospel and the word of God. And so at last we turn to the verses that we read from the very beginning. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see, Paul's previous arguments have now brought him to this point where he said, Now, finally, you can have good hope. You see, it's a hope that God your Father has adopted you via Jesus Christ because God loved you. And when you love someone, you give them good gifts. And what does God give us? He gives us eternal comfort. Again, we're not talking about temporary benefits. In fact, God is not your friends with benefits. That's the very term in our culture that replies something that will last for a short while, but has no long-term love or relationship. A friends with benefits is someone that, that won't be there all the time. It's conditional, but God is not a friend with benefits. He is an, a father who's adopted us and given us a covenant. He's given us eternal comfort. He's given us good hope. The hope that God gives us is rooted in his character, his promises, and his covenant. And to this day, God's character, promises, and covenant have not failed once. And so Paul can confidently say we have a good hope. And last, grace. We've been given this by grace. We don't earn any of this. You see, we were the poor orphan child in the gutter of sin. And God picked us up and adopted us. And now that we've been given all this, 
it says that our hearts can have comfort and our very work and words can be established because our identity is secure as an adopted son or daughter of the king. So let me close with just two, um, two questions for you. Again, Paul's questioning this church. So I'll ask you two questions. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Are you one who's being deluded? Or have you heard God's call of love and adoption? If you're one who's been deluded, maybe you're watching this with a friend from a church. Maybe you're watching it online. We'd love to, to hear from you. We'd love to pray with you. But we encourage you most of all to read Scripture. And if Scripture is true, then invite Jesus Christ into your life. And make Him Lord Jesus Christ. And begin to follow Him. The second question that I have to ask you, let me ask you this question. You see, perhaps you needed a reminder just like this young church. Perhaps you needed a reminder because things are, are not going well for you. Things are hard for you. Um, I'd certainly say circumstances with this pandemic, things are hard for all of us. Some harder than most. And other people have things going on in your life that are totally unrelated to the pandemic. Maybe you're struggling with grief or anxiety or despair. Depression is worming its way in. God's desire is to comfort your heart via his word in every good work and word that you do as his child. And so you needed this reminder, I believe, because in this season of isolation, the question I have for you is, will you draw close to God? Will you draw close to his word? God's desire is to establish your work and your words to give you meaning and purpose and significance. Will you draw near to him? A great truth and promise of scripture is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, we do, we pray and ask that you would draw near to us that you would give us an enduring hope. And Lord, I am so thankful, God, that um, the hope that we have in your return is not some hope in trying to figure out weird Bible codes, but God, your return will defeat evil and sin and wickedness the moment you show up. And so, Lord, I take hope in that. And I pray as Paul prayed, Lord Jesus Christ, will you come quickly? We pray this in your name. Amen.